Welcome back to Being Invested with me, Susanna Nicklin. This is the podcast about the personal stories of the people who make the markets. And you are going to hear today from one of the most influential movers and shakers in the UK venture and private equity markets, Wal Kolade. I am thrilled to share with you our conversation. He has contagious energy and real affection for the work he does. And he brings deep thinking along with a hands-on, let's solve this impatience and readiness to engage, both to create valuable and resilient businesses and to tackle the biggest issues in our society. I've always been fascinated by how skilled investors have become who they are, how they've ridden the roller coasters, and what it means to them. Wool's buoyancy of character and restless curiosity have stood him well in life and investing. From finding his feet at eight years old as the only black student in a British boarding school, to seeing opportunities and helping his companies avert risk, often by saying the important things that no one else wants to. We have dedicated this podcast to Wool's father, who passed away in May, and who also lived an extraordinary life. He was one of the few black students at Durham University in his day and went on to become a very successful diplomat on the world stage and a business leader in Nigeria. I very much hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. The mindset of being invested can enrich and elevate your own journey. And I hope this podcast will encourage more people into the sector who may not have considered it before. Thank you for joining me. And if you like it, please stay tuned for future episodes with riveting conversations full of insights into the careers, life hacks, and hard-won lessons of investors across the globe. My guest today is Wal Kalade, and I am truly excited and humbled to have the chance to share this conversation with you. I think you're going to love it. Wool is one of the most prominent people in the private equity market in London, but his influence, contributions, and inspiration extend far beyond the sector. He is managing partner of LivingBridge, a mid-market private equity firm managing over 3.5 billion sterling in assets for clients in the UK, the US, and Australia. Wool is also deputy chair of NHS England, a founder and trustee of 10,000 interns, a board advisor to Level 20, and formerly trustee of Somerset House, chair of Guys and St. Thomas's, chair of the BBCA, governor of the London School of Economics, and a non-executive director at Social Finance. He's also a husband and father of five. Wool graduated with an engineering degree from King's College London and has an MBA from the University of Exeter. I have a very vivid memory of when I first met Wool. I had recently joined the board of Barronsmead Venture Capital Trust, managed by Livingbridge. But at the time, the firm was called ISIS. Given the unfortunate associations, ISIS was changing its name. Wool stood up and introduced the directors to the new name, Livingbridge, and explained its origins and significance. As you'll hear in our conversation, Wool is a master communicator, and he conveyed a powerful vision for the firm symbolized by the new name. The metaphor clicked. Living bridges are suspension bridges formed of living roots found in the Indian state of Meghalaya that if tended can support the weight of many people crossing and last and evolve for several hundred years. I loved it, weaving together so many important values, supporting people and businesses to get where they want to go, working with, not against the natural world, the appreciation for different cultures, and the long-term rewards of cultivating strong roots. I've learned a lot from Wall, and as you will certainly glean from our conversation, he is not just an impressive investor and businessman. He has also found meaningful ways to use his skills and time to contribute to the most important public sector and social challenges, including leadership of the NHS and the founding of 10,000 interns. 
As if that wasn't enough, he's also thoroughly down to earth and great company. Wool, welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast as one of my early guests. So I thought we could start with your journey as an investor, Wall, and why and how did an engineering graduate from King's College end up founding one of our leading mid-market private equity firms? The story goes back to beyond my engineering degree, actually. Engineering is a bit of a diversion in that I was at my secondary school uh, in an economics class. I was sort of 14, 15 years old. And the economics master started talking about something called the ICFC which, of course, for those who know, was a former former name for 3i, uh, one of the original founding fathers of the venture capital industry in the UK. And he explained about investing in companies, backing innovation, and sort of new, new things. And I don't, for reasons I, I cannot explain, it just stuck with me. It, it absolutely captured me to a point where I literally could think of wanting to do nothing else. Um the problem was, of course, how on earth I actually get in an industry that didn't actually back then recruit graduates, that was actually really not very well known at all. Um, and so what I had to do was essentially sort of mount a campaign of what skills do I need to acquire in order to get myself into, into, um, into venture capital, private equity. I did lots of writing to people, asking about it, finding out about it. Uh, and <clears throat> actually partly as a result of that, my diversion in engineering was a sort of good science-based degree to help you into finance. But I was interviewed um, for a job at Barclays Bank on their sort of fast-track management training program. And, and the lady who asked from HR was interviewing me said, and do you know, do you know what you might want to do once you get into the um into the bank? You know, could we send you around to different departments for a year at a time? And I went, Well, I want to do venture capital. And she went, Oh, right. Well, do you know what that is? And I, and I explained. And and that's literally how I got the job. Because you know, a couple of years later, I was seconded to join what is a pre predecessor business at Livingbridge, and basically that's all I've ever done. So you knew very early on that you wanted to work in venture investing and directed yourself very deliberately towards it. What was it about you, Wool, that made venture investing so appealing, such a good fit, and that allowed you to have such conviction and direction? Again, I don't quite know why it grabbed me, but... It was, I mean, I've got a very, very low boredom threshold. Um, and the concept of being in one business, doing the same thing over and over again, I think was something I didn't, I couldn't really figure something out to say, that's the job I want to be. I, I want to be an engineer for my rest of my life. Actually, the joy of private equity and venture capital is, you know, every day people come into your, your, your business or office talking to you about some new thing. And that new thing is always about the future. We're changing the world in this way or that way, bringing a new product or innovation to help consumers, patients, uh, suppliers. Uh, and, and, you know, that if you love business, as I think I definitely do, then there's literally no other job, I think, that gives you more access and understanding to the best of the best in the country. Uh, that, and they come and talk to you about it. And you may not do the deal, you may not do the investment, but, you know, you always learn something. Let's look at the role of the investor instead of the, say, operating company CEO, which probably also could have been a role you could have stepped into at some stage. What about investing is meaningful to you? The joy about investment is that you can make things happen in a quite a direct way in the sense that, you know, one of the scarcest things that used to be about is capital uh, and deploying capital to, to change something, build something, create something is something that really sort of resonates with me. Whereas the job of a CEO, and obviously as an investor in private equity, you're dealing with CEOs all the time, 
is quite a different sort of tempo. You're having to sort of manage people, which is a huge part of what you do day in, day out. You are organizing and thinking about problems that occur there in there in your business. And you can't sort of, as we do, practically sort of step out and go to somewhere else and learn something completely different and be focused on that. Um, and then, you know, you move from that to something else completely different. So, you know, one day you're looking at retail business, then you're looking at a, uh, um, some sort of consumer product, and then you're moving to an IT business, then you're moving to healthcare business. And learning and acquiring those skills is an understanding the industries and how they work, and then how people apply themselves to make, you know, create good businesses in this area is actually, it can be quite challenging for some people, because if you like linear, straightforward, I get up every day, I know what I'm doing, then it's really not for you. But if you're if you're prepared to accept and indeed thrive on this, the variety that comes from that, the uncertainty that comes from being involved in that, then it's it's it could be for you, and it certainly is for me. And in fact, you have combined investing and leadership. You're managing partner of Living Bridge, and you've guided the firm through many strategic choices and changes. I'm interested in what guides you, and what sort of compass do you have? What mental map? has helped? And have you thought of yourself as a leader, as an outsider? Have you felt responsibility for being something in the world? And has that determined some of your choices? If I look back, clearly that must be must have been part of it. But when you're in it, it's difficult to stand back and go, I want to do something in order to be something. A lot of my, a lot of my career has been sort of turning left rather than turning right. And I, I can't explain why I turned left on that day. And it's led somewhere. I mean, the the Living Bridge business, which I was given the keys to to, to run, was out of sort of you know a problem. We, the business had failed, virtually failed, and had been taken over by an insurance company. And Friends Life back then really had no time for this little tiny uh, private equity subsidiary they had. And people were leaving the ship as it was sinking. And I remember sitting down my by my sort of computer and just sort of started writing about what it is we are and what I thought we could become. And no one asked me to do it. I just decided to do it. And and then I pressed send on the email into the CEO of the Topco. <laughs> I didn't hear anything for sort of three months. And then he called me in and said, this, this is you. Come and talk to me about it. I got 20 minutes. Three hours later, we were still talking. And after that conversation, you know, we had our first bit of capital, which helped us establish Living Bridge. Um, back in 98. So it was that, you know, I, I didn't wake up that morning thinking I'm going to write a strategic plan. I, I was literally sitting there having a chat and then thought, I just start typing and see where I go. Similarly, if I sort of project forward to 10,000 uh, interns uh, foundation that we've created back in the, uh, June 2020, when um, the world was sort of a light, if you will, with with the sort of murder of George Floyd, I, I, felt, I felt I needed to, there was lots of people asking for what I thought and you know, my opinion, and I sort of, you know, I want to push people away and go, look, this is really complicated, particularly asking me as a reasonably prominent black person to talk about, about it. And I decided I'm not going to actually answer any questions. I'm going to sort of, for myself, answer the question. So I wrote mm-hmm. an open letter, which generated some some attention, uh, in particular, one individual, a chap called John Sorrell, another chap, uh, a couple of chaps uh, who helped me set up 10,000 interns as a response, because it was like, what can we do? Not mm. just what can we do down the line, but what can we do right now? And and it was that sort of not quite a Zoom wine wine conversation, but literally a Zoom wine conversation that gave birth to this thing. But again, our ambition was twenty five. Can we get a few of our mates to sort of 
you know, take on four or five uh, interns next year, pay them a living wage, and off we go. And we started like that, and you know, lo and behold, we got to 100. In fact, we got to much more than 100 by the end of the summer. We started in June. I think we ended up with 258. People started asking us, how, how do we do this? And we sort of went, well, you just pick up the phone, call your mates. <clears throat> and they kind of went, well, can you help us? And then out of that conversation, well, why don't we just do something impactful like 10,000? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it seemed completely insane because we'd run the previous thing off a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. We had no organization. It was literally, you know, begging, borrowing, stealing from people. And suddenly I kind of went, well, if we do that, we have to like create a proper, a proper business, an organization. And, you know, I looked around the table and I was going, well, why don't we just do it? Yeah. And your moonshot has turned into a phenomenal success. It's really changing the opportunity landscape for Black candidates and more recently for people with disabilities. And I will include a link in the show notes for listeners to learn more. And and, uh, to get back to your real question, which is what guides me, I think it's, I'm a sort of person who likes getting stuff done. Uh, it drives my wife crazy. I'm sort of problem solver. I, I like to sort of face in and lean into challenges, uh, is, which is probably why my sort of rap sheet, which you gave at the beginning, has got so many different things on it. People just ask me, you know, well, would you do this? And I sort of go, yeah, sure. And then off we go. Um, and so healthcare started with a conversation um, with a particular individual at a dinner 15 years ago where, you know, she said she was a headhunter and she said, um, what are you doing other than, you know, Living Bridge? And I was explaining. And I said, sort of, I've got a small interest in healthcare. I might help lend myself to the NHS. And she went, oh, my goodness, don't do that. But I've got this other thing for you, which is Guys of Thomas's Foundation. And I did that for 12 years. And then you went to the NHS. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then someone <laughs> in the NHS noticed that I'd got some healthcare experience as well as being in private equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then they called me up and said, would I be interested in applying? And I said, absolutely not. No, over my dead body. Please don't talk to me again. And I find myself having spent six years as, uh, on the board now. <laughs> well, thank you. It's important work. Going back to your answer, though, in terms of what's driving you, what I'm hearing is actually there's a, a starting point of an instinct, like a gut feel. Yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm wondering how that relates to what came before, how that was trained, uh has it ever let you down <laughs> and do you think it in, is a relevant skill in investing i mean if I, if I think about how i how i how i approach investing i i really think about the return i, I start with okay we're going to involve ourselves with someone's life life life's work usually we're going to buy it we're going to invest in it um and we're then going to have a major influence and role in that you know what, let's just do lots of the right things, by which I mean, make the business better. And so I, the, the yardstick I use for our involvement with all my, my my colleagues is, okay, can we look back, having been invested for three, four, five years, whatever the time period is, and say, because of limited involvement, that is a better business. If the answer to that is yes, then I'm, I'm relaxed about whatever the return is. If the answer is no, then I'm understanding why, what did we do wrong? Why didn't we you know, intervene in the right sorts of way. Why do we bring what we ha- I think we have as a skill set to the situation? And the amazing thing is, when you start doing the right sorts of things and building in you know structures, processes, systems, and making good calls, hopefully, the the return follows. It's almost as easy as night follows day, or day follows night, right? 
I don't know when you aim for a particular return, how often that happens. Because if you do that, in my estimation, you end up focusing on some of the wrong things, the short-term things, the things that don't build long-term sustainable businesses. Now, I, I came to that approach uh, when I took over the business back in 98. And it was one of the things I wrote in that paper I was, I was put, I put to the CEO of uh, Friends Life, was I think that the previous regime hadn't been focused on that. And actually, I wanted to build a business where the culture was about doing the right things. And one of the things we said was, we want to be, we want to be seen as nice people to do business with. So we're, not, we're tough, we're demanding, but fundamentally we're fair and, and decent and we want to do the right things. And, and you know, in business, that's kind of become in vogue. But actually for us, it was always the core of what we wanted. Now, what's driven that? I think it... You know, it probably comes down to to my upbringing, I guess. I mean, I'm a citizen of the world, having lived in lots of different places before settling in the UK for schooling. And, and the first thing you realise is that there's no right answer to what the best society is. Um, there's just elements of different societies, different people sort of rubbing along with their history, their, their uh, situation, economic, uh, social, and they're just mostly trying to make the best of it. And as an observer, which I, I was in whatever country we were in, you know, coming back to the UK as well as a boarding school, you, you got a sense of, hang on, that, that's not always the best thing. There's other ways of looking at the world. Um, and that's probably what I, you know, I, I sort of, I got this sort of penchant for, you know, if everyone's looking to the right and uh, the, the received wisdom is go right. You know, my colleagues will always go, you can bet Wall will be going, yeah, but what's left? Mm. You know, let's have a let's just explore. I mean, we're going to do it, but let's actually find out what's happening left uh, before we all go right. Mm. Uh, and so it does drive some people crazy, uh, but it's it's just an instinct built into me, I guess, from from how I was brought up. You were the son of Nigerian diplomat parents and lived in many different places growing up, coming to the UK for boarding school at age eight. That could be quite a challenging or at least transforming moment for a child, particularly being a black student in an overwhelmingly white environment. What do you most vividly remember from that experience? As a sort of very young child, uh, sort of eight, going to boarding school in, in, in Sussex, um, uh, a place called Seaford, which is the edge of the, the South Downs and, and looks over New Haven and the sea, as it were. And, and and wondering what I'm doing here, particularly I'd been living in the West Indies beforehand, and still I still was when I was there. And and you know, kids adopt accents almost instantaneously. And so I arrived in this very prim British um, prep school with a very broad West Indian accent. And I realised quite quickly no one could understand what the what on earth I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I think within so my mother dropped me off, and by half term, I had a sort of British accent. <laughs> Because of course you sort of adopt very quickly, mm. uh, and 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 then and then I remember going to my senior school, um, which which is a place again in Sussex, which has a very large chapel. I think it's the largest college chapel in Europe, and there's a sort of dramatic uh, approach. We come down off a hill, uh, and then there's a bridge over this um, bridging two two hills, and as you emerge, there's the chapel in all its glory, Gothic and extraordinary. And it was a sort of dark winter's day. And I'm thinking, goodness, the next five years. This is not the West Indies anymore. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> um, or, or um, 
Oh, indeed. I mean, actually, you know, I, I did have, um, you know, the, I, I went through the experience of being in a school of 800 boys, give or take, the only black person there for a good three years, which in itself was interesting. Um, what is interesting? Good and bad. Well, it's good and bad in the sense that um, what was not surprising was kids immediately go, you're different, right? <laughs> really? Thanks. I am. <laughs> um, and, and then they sort of moved on very, very quickly, actually. You know, are you good at football? Yeah, you can play football? Great. You sort of park everything else. Uh, and I was, in fact, some of my very best friends, who I still see to this day, came from that period. And, and you know, uh, we are very, 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 very close in a way that's very different to having met people at university because 13 to 18 are really interesting formative years. So that was a very powerful, very, very, very important. The flip side was, whilst I expected children to, to point out the difference initially, you expect the teachers to kind of protect you and not to be part of creating the divide. And there was numbers of, of adults who were not only not seeking to protect, but actively seeking to to um, to cause harm, which was extraordinary, particularly as you had children in an environment outside of their parental support structure. Um, and again, today, those schools, these schools are not run like that. And you know, you would never, you would never see that happening. But back then there was very limited um protections uh, or in fact interest in pastoral stuff really it was sort of skin deep really um mm. not, not to put too minor points on it yeah. but um I mean net net I would say um I wasn't damaged by it and probably that's to do with my father's approach and my father he was a diplomat who um ended up going to university in the 50s so he was a Durham and you know he was one of I think three black people in the entire Durham University in the 50s and you know, anything I went through sort of paled, mm. paled compared to what he had to put up with. But his his approach was very interesting. It was kind of, um, he was so charming and, and disarming. And he did it with such grace. You know, he'd say when he was being sort of, you know, abused by someone, his response would be, you know, your parents must be so disappointed. And like, what do you mean? Well, that you're so badly brought up that you think this is the way we behave. You know, disarming, surprising, uh, and that—that's something which I sort of took on board. You know, it's actually you know you doing this is your problem, actually not mine, and and so, so it didn't actually penetrate. I think that's the really important core uh, to, to take away. I'd like here to acknowledge that you have just recently lost your father, and it sounds like he was a truly remarkable man who was a groundbreaker, an influential diplomat on the world scene, a leader of businesses, and a huge influence, someone who taught you a great deal. And if you'd like, I'd like to dedicate this podcast to him. That's very kind. Thank you. Your parents were Nigerian, and your formative years were spent in places as disparate as Washington, D.C. and the Czech Republic. But since school, you've spent most of your life here. You've made your home in Britain and actively contribute to national life. I'm curious to know whether it's represented by that huge Gothic church or the playing field. What does Britain mean to you? Well, I mean, look, I've got... My entire life has been built within this society, and I'm very grateful for the, um, I would say, tolerance uh, across, pretty much across the piece that I've, I've seen. 
Um, I would say the instances of intolerance have been, in fact, very overt, have been few and far between. Um, and, you know, I think most people don't enter into sort of relationships or involvement with people saying, I want to be harmful. That's not the British way. In fact, it's very, very accepting. And actually, uh, divides are, of course, they're there, but they're not as, they're not as clear as in some countries. I look at this and go, could I have succeeded to, to get where I am anywhere else? I don't know. Difficult question. I suspect not. Um, that there, there are things about the structure of Britain which allow me to get on. You know, my I've been here since I was eight. It, you know, I feel very British. I think it, it has some of the most extraordinary uh, uh, sort of geographical situations. So London is an extraordinary place. It's like nowhere else on earth. You know, melting pot. You know, it's huge divide between uh, rich and poor, extraordinary beauty, extraordinary uh, poverty, you know, um, health inequalities on a scale which beggars belief, and yet a vibrancy and an embracing of different cultures in a melting pot that is Notting Hill Carnival but that you, you don't see anywhere else. Um, and, and that feeling on a relative basis of, of I can actually walk about and people don't run after me or people don't, you know, if you're a celebrity of any kind, um, you know, you can sort of get on with your life, actually. And most people aren't interested in interfering, you know, let's just let you get on with it. And I think that there are more subtle things which we need to work on. And, and it, a lot of people don't agree with me on this. So I, I say this very openly, uh, in that for me, it's a question of the direction of travel on how our society improves rather, and, and, and the pace will go up and down depending on what's going on. You know, so, so sticking with this sort of racial issue for a minute, George Floyd accelerated some of the um, addressing some of the issues, you know, will that slow down? Maybe. Is the direction of travel in the right way? Absolutely. Uh, and that for me is the important thing. And I look back at my father's experience and, you know, people before, who've come before who built the foundation for what we have now. And I think that uh, Britain is in a lot better for it, right? I mean, I, I think I'm on record as being um, a Remainer. Um, I found, I still find having my passport stamped <laughs> uh, in a country which I used to visit when I didn't have it because we had this open border thing as being weird, actually. Mm, um, a step backwards. A step backwards. And, and I think that, um, you know, we'll look back in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever time, you, you know, is long enough to get perspective and wonder what was going on that's resulted in that. So clearly there was something going on. I don't know if it's relevant. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. You know, I looked at the facts, decided for myself, this is what I want to do, or how I want to vote in that, in that referendum. Uh, um, but I think that there's something going on that we didn't understand in Britain that led to that. Mm. Maybe it was the fact that Leicester won the premiership of that year, you know, 2016. Leicester came from nowhere and won the premiership in football. Mm -hmm. and, and then that was the beginning of lots of really weird stuff. There were lots of strange things going on at that point. Yeah. But fundamentally, I think, you know, Britain is a really wonderful country. I can't put it another way for the most part. That's not to say everything's great, but it's mostly good mostly okay, mostly positive, mostly accepting, mostly liberal, mostly supportive. But we've got stuff we've got to do. And renewing those values in public life. No, I, think, I think that's right. And then, I mean, if, if, I, if I start with things like, you, you mentioned public life, I think about things like the NHS, which um, is an extraordinary institution. Uh, and again, it's an exemplar of what Britain can create um, and sustain. But what we can't do is, is sort of keep an aspect. 
you know, the, the, the population it's serving has fundamentally changed since it was founded. And whilst the principles are correct, in my belief, of free at the point of views, you have to ask some really hard questions about at what point and how much and who and are there any consequences for how you've lived your life. Otherwise, you'll end up with a country that's supporting an entire health system. That's the end goal if we don't actually ask these hard questions. Um, and it's about renewal. It's about renewing the, the vision and how we execute that vision in this current century in a way that uh, addresses where we are in you know, modern medicine, living longer, diabetes and ill health, uh, chronic disease, all this sort of stuff. We need to just think, how does, how does that all relate? And, and what conversation are we prepared to have? And perhaps that's the one failing which we've seen, and I think it's imported, unfortunately, which is politicians who you know, used to have a, used to pride themselves in having hard conversations in recognizing the world is gray, not black or white in terms of how their outcomes and, you know, the way people win elections, whether it's the Australian model of, you know, knock people around and just be really crisp and clear, create dividing lines, et cetera. Um, does 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 mean we can't have proper conversations about really nuanced things. And most social problems are nuanced. You're clearly not avoiding tough questions. And what you've just said about the nuance and debate and the importance of having these conversations brings us back to the really powerful statement that you wrote in response to the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter events in 2020. I was really moved by what you wrote, and I will include that in the show notes for others to find as well. In response to a journalist asking in 2007 about what it was like to be one of only two prominent Black people in the UK private equity industry, you wrote that you felt, quote, there was literally no way that I could impart the lived experience that comes with my situation. And you shared the everyday experiences of racist microaggressions that are experienced and the in-your-face day-to-day examples of being mistaken for staff at the supermarket, not even wearing the same color as the uniforms, or being told the entrance in your apartment building was for residents, not delivery men. I'd love to hear how it felt to write it. And actually, is there more to say? I think it's 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 less more to say and more to do, actually, because we've kind of said it, we know it, we understand the issue, we're exploring the issue, we're unearthing it and making it more transparently so that people are clear what issues are and how problems manifest. And I think the particular thing that people now get is this thing of sort of microaggression. But actually, if you are living your life and you're finding yourself in a situation where small things impact and they don't seem like big things to someone who, who's not of colour, if you will, because it doesn't, it, you almost don't, you don't have a, you don't live your life with that present. Mm-hmm. But generally, it feels like just wading through treacle. And it's like a drag on you where, you know, minor administrative things, which most people take for granted. Actually, as a person of colour, sometimes you can't. And it's just sort of tiring and wearing. So exposing that, I think, is very, very important. And the way that manifests itself in bias across hiring recruitment you know opportunities that sort of thing and, you know and, and one of our recent former prime ministers said uh made a statement which i think is absolutely on the money which is talent is widespread in this country opportunity is not and, and that's mm-hmm. the root of what we're talking about here in the way that we structure ourselves and what perpetuates that is 
um, a lack of understanding of how uh, people's lives are lived, really. And it's, it's a willingness to enter into that conversation, I think that's important, and then to act on it as well. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm 10,000 interns has moved from just being about focusing on black, young black, we've got a, another vertical which is disabled, you know, we'll move on to something else. Um, so that we sustain the conversation about underrepresented groups and having them uh, get the same opportunities that others have. You know, the underlying thing is, for example, a lot of people think, well, interns should work for free. Okay, that's great. Thank you for that. The problem with that is you've pre-selected who's going to join. You've got to have backing. You've got to have, you know, the resources to be able to sustain yourself for six to eight weeks. Yeah. You're nothing. Yeah. Your, your, your yeah. pool of people, talent, moves from quite wide to, you know, to literally very, very narrow. Uh, and actually, it won't be because people deliberately say, we want to just pick those people. It'll be just they haven't thought about it. You know, and you go, hang on, let's think differently about this. You're saying that employers who want to reach new candidates need to change approaches to reflect really different contexts and needs in those populations, i.e. you will get the same cookie if you use the same cookie cutter, and uh, to recognize this and take on board really different circumstances and to change things, change culture and practices in order to give people from different backgrounds real opportunities to succeed. Absolutely. The flip side would be, for example, what can we learn from the intern rather than what the intern can learn from us? And uh, one of the most powerful things that uh, a number of very senior leaders have said to me, that one uh, 4100 CEO who's taken on, on, they they took 75 interns. And what she said was, um, it, it, it has changed the way our organization thinks about how we recruit and how we develop and progress people. That's from 75 black kids in their head office for six weeks. So that for me, and it's more of that broad and deep and making sure that this wave in quotes is sustained. Yeah. And not the one done approach that really doesn't change anything. No, no, Um, absolutely right. So I'd like to go back to who Wool Collade is and how you work getting all these really impressive things done that mean a lot in different vectors of life. It suggests you're very organized, suggests you are a master of prioritization. And I'm keen to understand what habits help you in this. And maybe equally importantly, what is it that you don't do? Gosh, um, I'm going to disappoint you, Susanna, by saying I'm actually terribly organized. I'm appalling. Well, that's actually fascinating coming from someone who has achieved so much. I'm wondering if there's some tactic or method in there somewhere. What I do have, though, uh, is a phenomenal uh, assistant who, who who organizes for me because I'm so bad at it. And and what she constantly does is check on priorities. Um, and that's that's how I sort of get through life, as it were. And I, I try to be as open as people as possible. I kind of go, right, I know I'm involved in these things, but I do have a hierarchy. It starts with Living Bridge, and then it used to be Geyser Thomas's. That's now NHS, and then it moves through. And I go, "This is how I operate." Are you still happy to take me on? Because if 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 you aren't, then we should probably stop the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally speaking, what people said is, "Yeah, sure." I remember I was on the board of a, a, a secondary school. Um, again, it's that classic having lunch with someone who said, "Well, I've got this problem. I need someone to help out. New new head coming in." You, you know, I know you don't know much about schools, but I think you can bring something here. I kind of yeah, sure, I'll help you out. But you know, here's my hierarchy, how's that works. And and I don't think I turned up to more than in my four years there, I think I turned up to like 
two government meetings, um, which is appalling. But what I did instead was I used to say to CEO, so CEO, the the, uh, the head, I will meet you for and have lunch with you three times a year, and we'll do two and a half hours. And for her, that was so much more valuable mm. than having me necessarily turn up to a, to, to a board meeting. And I think actually that's what the chair was actually after, was mm. that sort of mentoring the, the, the head, coming with a different perspective, helping her to think through different problems. So she just bring up a few problems and we sit there, have a very nice lunch and literally work through them. So as long as people are happy with that, then I, I, can, I, can, I can move forward. I think the, um, the, the, the habit I have which I, I hang on to and listen to very carefully is being curious. Mm. I can't, I, I can't help myself. I'm just driven by the, the need to sort of, Ooh, what's that over there? How does it look? And then when you look at it, you know, pick it up and you go, well, what if we just sort of turn it this way and see what happens? What if we shake it? Mm. <laughs> and I think the other thing which has been played back to me, in fact, I had um, I left when I left Somerset house, uh, the chair there, he's, she's so utterly wonderful. She said, she said, she said, I want to now spend 10 minutes talking to you about you in my speech, departure speech, my farewell speech, which was both deeply uncomfortable and and and, and quite, um, oh, anyway, difficult difficult to listen to. But one thing she said was she figured out that of all the people she's had on the board and some of the people she's worked with in the past, she can always guarantee that she has no idea what's going to come out of my mouth when I'm about to speak. Um, you know, normally she can read board members quite helpfully. Uh, but she says, yeah, I look at you and I kind of go, I want to hear what you've got to say. But I'm a bit worried because I just don't know what it's going to be about. How does that work? Is that because you're seeing things other people aren't? Or do you actively think, what have people missed? Where does that all, come It's kind from? of all the above. It's kind of, it's, it's what, what have people missed? How, how, what, how does it look if you turn the problem around a different way? Uh, what are people afraid to say? Afraid to say. What, what, what is it that we're not discussing because... So-and-so doesn't like so-and-so. So-and-so's embarrassment, such-and-such. So the other thing she said was, you can always guarantee on you saying all the things that people want to say but are too afraid to. It's, 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 so I think the, these are sort of important things to do to get the right conversation going. Um, to, to, at the end of the day, do it. By the way, I hope I do it with charm, uh, at least in a polite and respectful way. But I'm just trying to get to a better place. And it may be you sort of discuss it and then thread out but actually, these are important things for me to, to sort of move forward. And actually, where, where it hasn't worked, it's usually a board which is just very uh, structured, dominated by two or three people, refuse to take any counsel whatsoever. That's just not a place for me. And I've been very fortunate. Certainly, I know when I chaired a board, I start off with, if we're not having fun, then something's wrong, really wrong. Because, you know, business, life, we're doing, yes, important work, whether it's the NHS or Limbridge, but we've got to be able to enjoy ourselves because we're spending so much time on it. Um, and yes, it's stressful, but again, you can find humour, you can find enjoyment, you can find decent relationships and friendships out of this. Do you have any habits of thinking or mental models that help you or things you don't do that most of the rest of us do? Part of the problem I, I think I have, both good and bad, is... Um, and I had this sort of one of these major assessments for some role um, where psychiatrists or psychologists looks at you and write stuff down. And what she said was, it's rather curious because people are generally either grounded in today and like to know where they are, what's going on, or they're either in the future. They're always looking forward, always in the future, never worrying about today. 
And, and, and she said, the curious thing is, I think you were in both places at the same time. Mm. So you're quite happy to be in today, but you're also quite at the same time in a future state. So being in a, both a present and a future state at the same time is unusual. But that allows you to flex between the two. So the tension which you describe, I, I don't feel it in quite that way mm. because I'm comfortable with ambiguity, but I'm also mm. super practical and wanting to get stuff done, knowing that actually, even though in that direction, we may not solve the problem today, but that's okay. Um, because I'm sure tomorrow we'll figure something out. That's so interesting. And in terms of investing and how that might relate to that, some people, for instance, Charlie Munger, among them, uh, have cautioned against introducing emotion into investing and that may be more related to public markets. I'm interested to know how you see emotional factors playing out in the private equity market. And for you particularly, where has it helped and maybe where has it tripped you up? That, that is such a super question, Susanna, such a super question. W- when I first got into private equity 30-odd years ago, I remember being told by well, then boss, and in fact, generally the industry was like, it's all about management, 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 nothing else matters. And then we sort of went through this period where kind of, you know, people kind of go management interesting and important, but not be all end all. And then there was a period where literally people didn't care about management at all. Uh, we were solving problems on our own and private equity was getting their hands dirty and we were consolidating industries, that sort of stuff. And then I, I sort of, the other sort of, the, the phrase which is the older I get, the less I know for certain. Because I look back and I go, for sure, management is still really important. In fact, it's always been important. It's the defining factor. And uh, so it almost come full circle back to, but the trouble is I don't know how to pick good management in an absolute mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I can look at and analyze the industry and look at it and think, you know, this is moving, that's moving, that structure's offering opportunity. But the problem is, and why it's so super crucial, we know it's crucial that as a factor in terms of defining success or failure in investing. And yet we have not found a great way of calling good management. So mm-hmm. let's take the, the, the recent period we've been through. Um, a management team pre-COVID, so up until 2019, and all the things they're really good at, would not necessarily have got you out of jail, if you will, through COVID. Mm. Similarly, some of the people who got you through COVID wouldn't necessarily get you to where you need to be now. Mm. Um, and your assessment process is a constant. You're checking in, you're talking, you're involving yourself with people. Um, and I don't know how you can do that without emotion. It's it's mm. nearly impossible. You have to bring some emotion to that because we, we you know there's a we're, we're, we're pivoting away from this market because COVID has said that we you know it didn't work so moving there. I've got to yes I'll do the rational analysis, but I've got to use the, sort of the EQ element of what I'm doing to say do I believe this person really will deliver for me? You know, and and maybe to to to, to your point about Charlie Munger's uh, uh, commentary. He's talking about public markets, but if he doesn't like you, he just sells his stock. Mm. That doesn't happen for us. We're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, as a consequence, we have to bring that to bear, both in our assessment and in, in the, before we do the deal, and then when we're doing the deal as well. And sometimes that means we have to you know, shake hands politely and people move on because mm-hmm. someone else is needed. Or you have to roll the dice and think, the evidence isn't there, but I really trust this person. Mm. And what gives them the chance to make it happen. And you know, no, neither's perfect, neither's correct. It just depends on the circumstance. And of course, the problem is you only know with hindsight whether you made the right judgment or not. But I think mm. you know, it, it is the other thing I would say is 
you know, it, it's it's a bit difficult to do a deal with someone that you really don't like. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying everyone is your best friend, but it's more if I can't find something to like and respect in you, mm-hmm. why would I give you money for five years knowing that the only way I get my money back is if you do a great job and sell the business and make us decent money? Mm-hmm. It doesn't play. Um, which is why a lot of the times what you have to guard against is making sure you don't like someone too much, actually. Mm. Um, maybe that's the emotional element, but you don't like someone too much so that actually you're sort of, it's blinding you to, 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 to what's not being said, if you will. It helps you also when you have to make change, if you have a sort of foundation of respect and friendship, because, you know, friendship isn't about having just really easy conversations. Sometimes it's about having really tough conversations. You know, I think that, that people sort of mistake friendship for just about, well, it's always nice. It isn't always nice. Think about your friendship relationships. Sometimes it's testy. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's awkward. Um, but the, the key is you have a foundation, which is respect and liking, which allows you to get back to the an even keel, uh, you know, without without causing too much damage. Uh, but, you know, the, the management piece here is so an environment which is volatile, you know, uncertain, um, in the way we live in the world, you know, who, who knew that Russia was going to you know, invade Ukraine, even up until the minute they did? <laughs> um, and who knew that was going to, 18 months later, lead us to interest rates, which went up, what, 12, 14 times, or maybe more, uh, and inflation of where it is. You know, no one knew that. And yet, management have to operate and develop business in that. And we have to invest in that environment as well. And like you say, the relationship as a private equity investor or a private market investor is different than the public market because it's a relationship with the people rather than with a stock. So it may not be so much managing your own emotional response as the emotions within the relationships. I think, I think that's right. And, and it's very direct in the sense that we're sitting on the boards, we're having these conversations, we're having regular contact. Uh, we're debating and discussing you know, issues in a, in a hopefully an open and transparent way. Uh, which we don't know, always know the answers to. Uh, we're taking bets, uh, you know, calculated bets, obviously, on investing in a product or market or a new thing that um, we don't have the extreme, you know, the perfect evidence to support that. You know, you're sort of sixty-seven percent sure, and then you go in and you see what happens, and then you pivot and move, and you know. So it's it's a much more dynamic relationship, if you will. You must see the basic emotions of fear and greed operating even among the team and around the the boardroom table when you're looking at investments and chewing them over together. Um, how does that get balanced out? Do you name it? Do you like? Do you somehow rein those extremes in? Do you lean into them? So, so the worst thing that manifests is oh. Last time we did this, it looked like this, and it worked out really well. This looks like one of those. That's terrible, absolutely terrible. That, that, that you know, uh, because that's usually an excuse to say we're going to make you know loads of loads of money on an asset, and, and you know, invariably it turns out not to be true. We try and approach each thing fresh. We try and put our past you know successes and failures to one side. Not that we ignore them. But we focus on what's fundamentally going on here. Again, because it's a committee structure, the people around that table. It's a sort of it's an experience game, private markets and private equity, I'm afraid, in the sense that, uh, you know, I've got colleagues I've been working with for 20 plus years. I've seen things in a different way that I've seen things, but we know that together, and I hope our track record shows that, when we worry through a problem together, we, mm-hmm. we sort of iron out the fear and the greed, um, mm-hmm. hope it becomes a balanced decision that results in a good result. The other thing we're also cognizant of is just making a decision to buy into something or buy something outright is is you know, base camp one, 
there's a whole other piece of the journey where we can impact for ultimate value through what we actually do. And we know this. And again, there are many examples where things have gone, you know, right and they've gone really right. Uh, and actually I could point to the interventions we made that helped to make that happen. Similarly, um, not so often, thankfully, where we caught something wrong and we didn't for fear reasons, you know, we can't get rid of SEO because if we do X will leave, that will happen. We've got no else to replace them. Six months later, we think, oh my goodness, why on earth did we keep the person in place? We should have got rid of them straight away when our instinct was, we were just worried and fearful of what would happen. Uh, or greed, yes, I'm going to sell this business and I think it's worth X. And someone offered me X minus I mean, 3%. And some people go, right, deal's off. You know, I try and go, why are they doing that? Can we get any better? And that classic, is it uh, Rothschild's quote at Waterloo, which was uh, something along the lines of, I, 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 I never got poor by selling too early, but I know many people who did by selling too late. Mm. It's always in our minds. You know, it's kind of like, I don't mind if I leave some value on the table for the next investor. What I'm trying to iron out is that greed of squeezing every last penny out of everything all the time. Now, some people have that approach and it works very well for them. You know, our approach is we'd rather be known for selling really good stuff where people have upside still to come because that means mm. generally people will keep buying from us. If your reputation is the reverse, which is you squeeze the pips out of everything, there's nothing left for you, you buy it, it goes bad. And guess what? Pretty soon people stop buying from you. That's that's a really interesting insight into the engine room there. Well, thank you. And someone from the outside looking at, at your career and what you're doing now and what you've done, it could seem like a very smooth ride. It could seem a very charmed life with a lot of successes. And I'm wondering if there's any period of time or something where you've really had to dig deep and what you learned from that and how you got through that. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the foundation of Living Bridge in its current form was was a, a dreadful period. I mean, back in 97, uh, when we were working for the, the predecessor firm, and I was one of the just been made a sort of junior partner, as it were. And I remember we had a business with sort of 25 people in it, and we were managing assets of a, a couple hundred million. And then by the end of the year, we had five people and assets of 30 million. Um, there's a whole very long story as to why that happened, but there's a lot to do with really poor decision making um, and uh, and some bad luck. But that was the ultimate result, and and that's that's the point at which I had the cho- cho- choice of just leaving with everyone else or staying and doing something different. Um, and the digging deep was, you know, I, I referred back to writing a plan which I sent in to stop thinking about what we did and and and, and wishing for what we did just to continue because clearly something wasn't right. And the thinking, we've got to do something quite different to sort of not just reestablish ourselves, but to accelerate and leapfrog. And it's got to be sustainable and long term. And that, that involves asking really hard questions about how do we do what we do? What does it mean? Being honest with why it didn't work and then being really thoughtful and not in a particular hurry to say, well, why can we build something that will work? And then, of course, having got through that, it's getting the people to be around you to buy in the same vision, either your investors or your staff, actually. Mm. Um, I remember one of my colleagues saying when I tried to persuade him that, you know, it wasn't to join our business, that it wasn't about next year, even the year after. It was about in five to 10 years' time getting to a particular place. Mm. And, and then and he'd say the reason he joined was because no one ever, no one ever expressed it like that. You know, you're coming to be part of something where we're going to build something 
Mm. Um, and that's what appealed to him. And so, and the, the, the dark day, I mean, there were really dark days where the market, you know, rejected our approach. <laughs> you know, they said, no, no, you are in this box, stay there. And you had to go, uh, no, we're not. When you say the market rejected it, what did that mean in practice? What did it feel like? It, it, so it was, for example, we opened an office in Birmingham in 1999. Oh, just before then. And Birmingham and that Midlands area, most of the deals were manufacturing deals, you know, making things, bashing metal or whatever. And we turned up and said, we're not doing any of those deals. We're just doing services. <laughs> and the market kind of went, well, you'll be here five minutes, won't you? <laughs> we're still in Birmingham. Uh, and of course, the, you know, the pivot in private equity towards services away from manufacturing has been, you know, clear. Or we're trying to invest in a bigger company, target a bigger company than we currently were, had a track record of doing. And the intermediaries wanting you to sort of stay in the box because you're servicing the particular need they have. And they've already got people up here. And it makes it more difficult if you're trying to sort of move to a different part of the uh, market. But we knew we had to because actually... We were doing micro deals, which were the variability in terms of return was so great. You need to have something, some input, some sort of heft, if you will. So that some of the work we're doing actually makes a difference, which meant we need to get to a different place. Um, and it was really part of that initial plan was to, to drive forward and try and make that happen. Or indeed, I mean, dark days when, you know, I I sort of live or breathe every single investment we do. And, and you know, the ash cloud, for example, or... COVID or Brexit, you know, you're sitting there staring on the barrel of something which is really quite challenging. And again, I think people have forgotten a little bit just how challenging COVID was. I remember sitting and, and looking at, in sort of mid to late March, the government mandated shutdown of what, a third of the economy? And and that, you know, we'd never faced anything even close. I mean, the GFC was nothing like that. Um, yeah. But literally, government's telling you, you cannot trade. And then being, and I think probably the reality of it was we kind of, as a group, came together and we sort of supported and helped each other in that we knew we'd get through this somehow, because generally you do. But the more important thing was recognising that subsequently there'd be issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't do that and expect after it opens up again, all supply chains to work perfectly. You don't do that, expect, expect consumers to come back as they did or even do that. There's going to be all your staff to come back as, and do what they did. You had to be ready to sort of, be flexible and adapt to whatever circumstances there, which is again quite uncomfortable. So we knew we we're in for a good two or three years of really quite uncomfortable um, trading and, and economic situations. So, which again, you either thrive or not, you don't. And the group of people at Livingbridge who work with me, it's kind of ingrained in us actually. The resilience. Yeah, agility and resilience. Those are the two things we talk about a lot and have done always. Just moving into sort of more personal um, sort of territory. A lot of people shy away from big ambitions and big roles um, for fear of what it might do to a family life or potentially sort of um, dampen personal ambitions. Um, how have you balanced that? How you have five children, you clearly enjoy life. How do you find a balance with the huge commitments that you have and, and particularly earlier in your career? How did that balance work? But to be honest, it didn't work. <laughs> you know, when you're building a business and trying to establish yourself, and then you you sort of start saying yes to people outside your business to help them do what they're doing as well. 
uh, time gets eaten up really, really quickly. I have a very, very accommodating wife, I think, in that she 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 recognizes how restless I am. And I think that's part, part of the problem. I'm quite restless and quite, you know, he, he, I, I like to think about things a lot and, and then sort of try and get them done. Uh, and I think it would be, it would be, you know, it would not be playing to my, to what drives me if I ended up just shutting that down artificially to say, I want to balance, you know, work and life, uh, work and family. And, and yeah, I mean, I think there's been sacrifices and things which haven't been done. But by the same token, I think that hopefully my children recognize a certain way I am and that for the really critical things, you make time to be there. But when you're running a business and we own the business, there's kind of just no off switch. Um, so the balance comes from knowing when to switch off because you mentally and physically need it. And I do do that. And it's a hard switch. So uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to go skiing. It's something I came to very late in life. But it's the one time when I literally don't look at my phone. I don't talk to anyone. I just enjoy being present. You know, there's some sort of purity in, in the way, you know, if you get it right, you can ski. And that whole sort of experience, I love being in the mountains, the air, the light, and that sort of stuff. Um, so there's sort of pockets of it, but it's and it's not conventional. In I don't have a sort of I work nine to five. Some days I don't. I think I would struggle to recognise I've done any work at all. Mm-hmm. Actually, instead, what I've done is think thought a lot, and the thinking and talking is more to do with two years time than it is to do with today. Or it's to do with someone told me this yesterday, someone told me this last week, someone told me this two years ago. There's a sort of pattern there which I just need to pull together. If I'm sort of sitting at my desk trying to read stuff, I wouldn't get there. I need to walk around, think about it, talk to people, and then come to my desk. So it's a sort of very, um, very privileged to be able to do this in the way we, I do, partly because it's my own business and it's a, it's, a, it's a knowledge business as well, where, you know, you can bring that experience to bear and, and hopefully at the right time in the right situation. And it sort of plays to my strengths, I guess, I guess as well, in that I would say what I bring to Living Bridge is the sort of external challenge. Even though I'm in it, I know it sounds weird, isn't it? You know, you're running the business, but it's a it's a knowledge business, an investment business. You know, being on the board of the NHS, you go, what on earth has that got to do with Limbridge? The answer is an enormous amount. Mm. You know, a lot of what we're doing is addressing social challenges, social issues, uh, whether it's healthcare, it's consumer, or it's technology. And the NHS and being on the board and, and having the privilege to listen and interact with some of the brightest minds, scientists, clinicians, about frankly they're not entirely soluble human problems. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, the sun shines the next day, you've got to get up and make it work, right? Is is a sort of antidote and a help. When you go back to your tiny problem, which is you know, about making a return on investment driven by a logical profit profile, cash flow, blah, 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 blah. you know, you can argue, but you generate the right decisions because you've got to make cash flow in a, in a different world. And you sort of see the challenges that brings. And it helps the mindset thing. I come back to this, I think investment at the core so being curious, not necessarily always accepting the state of the received wisdom, and being brave. And and I, I, there's a, there's a one of my colleagues who you know talks about the fact that there are three investment decisions. Um, everyone else forgets the third one. So the first one is buy. Mm-hmm. Second one is sell. The third one is do nothing. Right? Which which people it's a, it's a sort of a deliberate. I will literally do nothing in terms of buying or selling or anything. Mm. I've just watched. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really valuable um, state to be in as much as I'm buying or selling. Yeah. And people always ignore it. They think they have to be doing one or the other. And the answer is actually sometimes just do nothing. Yeah. And, and actually it's really helpful. 
I, I, I thought the third you were going to say was size. Some people say the third question is sizing, but uh, just goes to show that doing nothing is, is, is overlooked. <laughs> it's a really good point. And I hear some resonance between what you said the psychologist noticed in your uh, approach to solving or thinking through things of the groundedness now, but also the future, an eye to the future. You know, if you're dealing with a portfolio company now, but you're bringing the NHS long-term solution to national healthcare into the room, there's that constant here and then kind of attitude and approach. I said, it's something that I, I now been told it years ago. I, I recognize I can see what's happening and, and I, I no longer fight it. And I think, again, the joy of, of, of getting older <laughs> is you sort of, if you're doing it right, in quotes, you end up understanding more about yourself and being honest about what you're good at, what you're bad at, and what you actually are. Uh, and I think you, you asked the question about the sort of turns and, and pivot moments and what have you. And I would, I've, I've come to recognize and not be stressed about certain things. So in the past, I used to get unbelievably stressed about writing a speech, for example, for a presentation I need to do. And I'd spend hours doing it, hours doing it. And then it would drive me crazy and I wouldn't enjoy myself. And then I sort of got to a place where I sort of stopped, stopped doing that. I literally would start my speech about a couple of days before it's, I needed to do it, which is absurdly short time. But that's how I do it best. And I don't worry. So if someone asks me to write about something or do some speech, I literally will not do anything about it till a couple of days beforehand. And and I, I know that gets the best out of me. And it's deeply mm. uncomfortable, by the way. Mm. <laughs> Not even do any research or do anything about it at that point. Deeply uncomfortable. But somehow, you know, and I don't know where it comes from, it just manifests. I've tried going back and do, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I just stopped doing it. Um, that, absolutely stopped doing it. That's a great example. So my life is more straightforward. <laughs> Yes, fantastic example of how you've learned who you are and what works best for yourself, just in time rather than just in case. Exactly, exactly exactly right. right. I wanted to ask what you're most proud of in your life. It has to be my family because through all this, somehow we've created five children, all seemingly well-adjusted, I hope. (laughs) And, you know, we enjoy spending time together. We, We... are still lucky enough. My oldest is now 28. My youngest is 16. And we, we like going on holiday with each other, mm. which, which I, in fact, we positively look forward to it. And we do it at least twice a year. Uh, maybe that's because dad's paying. I don't know, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you, you've got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> exactly what it, um, <laughs> but actually, we have a really good time. And, and you know, the so COVID accentuated that when we all came back, they all came back home and we're in the countryside, which is where I live. And okay, it was stressful in the beginning, but Underneath it all, there was a sort of certain bond, a, a love, and ex- an understanding of each other, accepting, and 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 sort of a closeness that meant you could actually have fun. It wasn't just a you know a relationship built on whether parents or the children. It was actually much more in- involved. I mean, of course, they're, they're dividing they're the lines, which people hopefully don't cross too often. But actually, I, I enjoy their company, and actually, my real strong hope is that you know each of them will find their own path to doing something extraordinary. That's kind of all I say to them. I don't quite know what it is, but I don't really mind what you do, but for goodness sake, really go at it, right? Just really go at it. Uh, and um, unfortunately, some people who 
you come on holiday with his friends or what have you describe our family as the most competitive family they've ever come across you know but it's cards whether it's this whether it's that you know <laughs> <laughs> we, always, we always get into it so if you're playing spades around the oh, dinner table in the chalet after skiing it's a it's a pretty intense we, experience we, we, we've given up on things like articulate mm-hmm. we, we, we're just we actually had to get a, you know, it took us a while to figure out that the thing with the sand in it didn't work. We needed a digital clock that absolutely told us exactly when the, your time was up, rather than someone trying to determine when there's one or two little grains of sand in. <laughs> every second, every microsecond counted. <laughs> exactly. In the Collado family. It does. Okay. That's great. And for you, in terms of really going at it, what in the future excites you? What what personal growth or development do you see for yourself in the years ahead? I think the, the problem with private equity, when you love business, is that it's so hard to ever leave. And actually, uh, I hope what I'm going to be doing over the next few years is, is handing over more responsibility for running the day-to-day to people who are, who are capable and want to do it and are good at doing it. But the sort of interest in business, the interest in sort of where business is having an impact on society and how that's working, I can, I just I don't see myself not being involved in that. But then the flip side is this sort of public service area where, in many ways, you could say the NHS is the biggest, the biggest public challenge we've got. And mm-hmm. I've been deep in that for, for a few years and deep in healthcare. And again, I can't see myself leaving that entirely. It's just finding ways to contribute and help people to solve problems uh, is, is what I find so I can't see myself not being active in spheres where I can make a difference is probably the, the answer. Mm. I find the the business of government, if I put it that way, just the, it's probably the next big challenge. It's not po- politics. It's not what I'm talking about. It's how does government actually work to deliver for society? Um, and that, that that is you know, an enormous question, enormous challenge, but one that I find having brushed up against it, uh, either in private equity sphere or in the, in the sort of NHS healthcare sphere, and and I found sometimes it's been extraordinary. It works really well. Uh, unfortunately, not you know there there are many opportunity situations where it has not worked at all. And it's not that people are deliberately setting out to be you know, harmful or do the wrong thing. It's just the, the process, the situation they designed is not appropriate. And it's really they don't see it. <laughs> and you know I sort of half see my roles going. Can't you see it? Mm. <laughs> it's really clear. But that's not how they made their career. That's not how they made the, the advance in their uh, particular department or whatever. And yet, if you go back, stand back and go, you know, this is about delivering for society. It's not mm-hmm. the activity itself. So, so I, I hope I'm sort of healthy enough and well enough and, you know, I, I have the energy to continue to sort of contribute in ways. Mm-hmm. And probably, to be honest, Suzanne, it will be someone will go, well, um, I've got this thing. Any chance I can interest you in it? And then mm-hmm. from that will come something. And when you say get involved in helping the business of government, what as you imagine how that might work? Is that at what level would you pitch that? How would, I mean, where's the leverage? Yeah, so so having I don't think it matters whether it's the really big end or the small end. So it could be local government um, because within local population you've got stuff to do. I saw that as guys at Thomas's Foundation, but within Lambeth and Southwark, and that was very present, very instant feedback almost is what we're doing um or it could be at the, you know the national government level where you're working on sort of really hard problems that don't require you be there and delivering today but restructuring how we think about delivering down the road mm-hmm. um or how we frame a problem because mm-hmm. uh i mean there are some really big ones mm. where we just have to stop and really rethink how we think about that problem it's not party 
a partisan yeah. uh, conversation. It's just more, how do we make it work better? So we yeah. can actually actually see we are delivering for 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 um, the population. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's hopefully something I'd like to be involved in down the road. In terms of advice or observations from what you've learned working with the 10,000 interns program and just hiring well over the course of your career, what advice would you give to people considering entering investing now and any tips to improve their success? I guess you start off with you've got to be comfortable with ambiguity because, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you buy a company, great, but that's not a great investment necessarily. There's stuff else to do. And, and that's quite weird in terms of how we operate in many situations. You know, I, I signed that new contract. I won that new deal. I created that new product. That's not our involved. That's not how we roll. So you've got to be comfortable with that. You've got to be comfortable with the language of finance, because if you don't understand that, then you can't have the conversations. I think there's an increasing role for being au fait with technology, you know, not just using it, but understanding the sort of pervasive nature of where technology is impacting across society and how that impacts business. Um, and I come back to the two words that really have been central to the way you built Living Bridge and we always look for in people we try to hire, which is you know, agility, which implies some element of, you know, spiking, if you will, in being able to sort of over-index in one particular area is great, but you have to flip something else if it's not working. I'm really good at, um, I don't know, analyzing a problem. Mm -hmm. I do the spreadsheets really well. It's interesting um, and may serve you well. But actually, you've got to be able to then, to, for example, um, assess management, two skills mm -hmm. which are not exactly the same. But you need to make sure that, you know, the fact you're overindexing and being a really great analyst doesn't stop you learning how to be good at assessing management because you're going to need that, you know, in, in terms of the rounded nature of what we do. Um, and it's about being resilient. So it's that sort of understanding that there'll be good and bad days that you got to take each the same mm -hmm. you know and 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 not let it not don't internalize it don't make it don't let it define who you are and what you are and part of that's that classic thing of you know you know the next the next deal might be a great deal even though i did a bad one but you got to recognize i've done a great deal the next deal might be a bad one mm. <laughs> um in terms of so it's a really weird setup isn't it where you're sort of constantly having that that sort of uh, imbalance. The, the, the joy about this, though, is with resilience, while it's so important, is because generally we can act to do something about it if it's not going the right way. Mm. You know, we can sort of face up to the problems, lean in, change management, uh, reinvest, um, buy something, change the processes, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're paralyzed by the fact you've made a bad judgment on the way in and you can't move forward, then this is not a game for you. You've mm. got to just suck it up Double down, make a difference. So I think that those two things are important in terms of being in, in private equity. I mean, it's, you know, you've got to love, I think you've got to love business because people equate it to being involved with finance. And I think about much more about involving yourself with business. Um, it's not the same as being an investment banker. On the face of it, private equity still appears an elite and fairly homogenous bunch. You're actively involved in helping to change this. What do you think needs to be done from here? You've got to build a pipeline because the problem is it's an area which people have not wanted to go into because they look at it and go, where's anyone who looks like me? Where's, where's any evidence the industry cares? Um, and too, too often we basically double down on the fact that here's a successful group of people who investors think are successful and we're going to be successful so we can't change them ever. And that's just wrong. 
we've we've got to build that pipeline early and 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 get, go on the journey to ensure that we're looking at each different sort of stage. We are bringing people in and making sure they're staying because you know it's all very well you know, hiring a whole bunch of analysts and suddenly you know your intake looks more diverse. But if it's not feeding through into sort of you know mid level people and then ultimately to senior senior people, then then something's going very wrong. So you got to look at. Uh, David, my colleague on 10,000 Interns, talks about kinks in the hose pipe. And, you know, the hose pipe is talent. And you've got to make sure that you you, you open it so that as many people come through, but there's never to be kinks in the hose pipe. You know, where are they? How do we address them? So the interns thing is one kink in the hose pipe, which is basically we'll unkink the people experiencing understanding and having access to it. Okay, let that open. And of course, it's going to be another kink down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and other world we'll trying to solve, someone else will try and solve it. At least we've now made it an issue that people can really lean into. Yeah, you've got the flow going. Yeah, you've got a flow going. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, And actually, the good news is, I have to say, the private industry is taking this incredibly seriously, partly because the investors are taking it incredibly seriously. Um, And whilst it's it's not, you know, you look at the numbers and go, not much has changed. Actually, there's it's the willingness and desire that's really I I can sort of taste almost in in people who talk and think and and want to address this. And and it's you know that stay on the journey is the big thing. I have so many more questions for you, Wool, and we could talk for hours, but it's time for the wrap up with three quick fire questions. Do you have a favorite film or novel that you've seen or read more than twice? Uh, I would go to The Godfather 1 and 2 over and over again, uh, and I never, ever get bored of watching it. I, I, I there's just you know, I could I could wax lyrical about why. Uh, there's so much in it. Um, I like I love sci-fi. Mm. Uh, I like science fiction books, but I like autobiographies, like financial books. Um, I, I, within each genre, I could pick out the four or five films or books or, that I like. Do you have a yeah. favourite sci- sci-fi book that you want to leave or as a suggestion to listeners? The sci- favourite sci-fi book is the Lensman series. And the Lensman series is a, a series of books written in the 30s and 40s. And the reason why it's so powerful is this is pre-space flight. This is pre, you know, it's like H.G. Wells territory, if you will. Mm. But, but if, if you read these books, it's about uh, 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 um, essentially a sheriff, if you will, in you know, space, look, being sort of judge during executioner, solving mm. problems. And you flick forward, you see Judge, judge Dredd and things like that come out mm. of it. So it's a, a, lot of, a lot of the way we think about science fiction today has come from this extraordinary individual who had this mind that came out with how he approaches galaxies, how he thinks there's Star Wars, you can get, there's a whole series of things that just, just leech off this. And going to the original source, I was quite, 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 find quite interesting. Mm. Uh, of, of, uh, the, and you kind of, if you're in science fiction and space operas in particular, you start off with the normal ones, and then you, I do, and I work backwards to see, well, why is that idea there? And then you end up with all those Lee's Lensman series. I've just looked it up and the author is E.E. E. Smith. And I will put this in the show notes so that people can go back and discover the full Lensman series themselves. How about you, Wool, while we're on the subject? Are you an AI optimist or an AI pessimist? Optimist. I'm optimistic, partly because I think um, we're in overreach territory, as in, I think that what we think it's capable of won't necessarily manifest in the way it will do. Yes, it's affecting social media and problems like that, but that's not the only thing it's doing. 
And I think that the the sort of complement being complementary to human activity to human uh, life is largely will end up in the ne- in the near future. So in the near future, I'm quite optimistic. In the very far future, I think that's more it's more challenging um, because I think we probably underestimate how it will probably be in our bodies and how it will affect what we do and how that that sort of mind human mind machine melding will will take place. But am I talking 50 years, 100 years, 200 years? I don't know. But I think we probably underestimate that we may not, in 200 years or 500 years, who knows, be able to discern the difference between us and machines in quite the way that's distinct today. So that's sort of the machine will take us over and kill us all. I I don't really buy, but that sort of melding, you know, and and finding ways where the interface is so seamless and what's reality and how's reality work and things like that, that might be quite different. Our own evolution would, exactly. would be changed. And favorite quote and why, Will? Um, I don't know who said it, but it's basically, it goes along the lines of, be careful how you treat people on the way up because you never know who you're going to meet on the way down. And that's just about being respectful to people and never being overblown by your own success. Um, because and it's happened to me so many times where, you know, someone who's on the up has essentially treated you badly. <laughs> And then you see them on the down and they kind of forget that they've done what they did. And you sort of go, we were in the room together, right? Mm. Um, I just think it's such a, such a lovely way to live life is, is just by being nice, respectful, decent. Not a pushover, that's not what I'm saying, but it's more just treat people with kindness, be generous with time, with involvement, et cetera. Um, and, and, and don't be a pompous, arrogant so-and-so, especially if you're working in a business or you have a privilege. I mean, I regard private equity as an incredible privilege, incredible privilege. And and I would I would I would never try and say it's all about me and my genius and brilliance and I'm taking amazing because of what I do. No, it's it's about a lot of good fortune, a lot of extraordinary people I work with and have worked with. Um, and never forget, and that's probably why I end up getting back as much as I try and do. Never forget that um just because I'm up, I could be down tomorrow. And finally, what is your favorite podcast? We can shout out to some other podcasters. <laughs> Gosh, well, it's not sort of podcast as as a sort of series, I and mean, maybe it's an original podcast, but it's you know I, I'm still a sucker for design discs. I think you know done well, you you, you end up having you know an extraordinary 45 minutes where you get incredible insight into someone and their life. And I remember things like you know there's one in particular which sticks in my mind. But so Ian Wright, the footballer, was being interviewed, and and what came out of that uh, was so moving. And I was quite surprised because I'm not an, even any way, shape or form an Arsenal fan. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of interviewer, interviewee sort of relationship, that sort of chemistry works so brilliantly. Uh, and there's many, many others which, 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 which happen like that. But, you know, you've got these long, very long form pod- podcasts. I think Tim Ferriss does a really long one, which is three and a half hours or something. And again, some of them are brilliant. And then some of them are just not, not on the money. Whereas I think Desire Discs, to do it in 45 minutes and capture the essence of someone, and then in that 45 minutes, you've got music being intervened as well. And that's that joy, isn't it? It's not just the person, it's their music choice, which really gives you an insight to who they are. It's very, very clever. And it's a format which is still here and has been going for decades. So for me, I can go everywhere else, but I'll always have Desire Discs on my, on my iPhone. Well, if anyone from the BBC is listening, please invite Wall onto Desert Island Discs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he has his list ready. <laughs> so, 
Well, that's been really, really great. Thank you so much, Wal. I really enjoyed our conversation and you've given a lot of, of great advice and offered and shared much personal insight. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've had a, a blast and uh, I, I loved your, your questions and, and the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time.